This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm excited for today's show. We're, we're going to talk about, listen, we got 60 something, like maybe 60 days left. Um, so we do have to talk some politics, but I want to do it some, from some different angles, uh, as we often do. I want to talk about Hillary's psychologist's dream team that she has put together. Barack Obama did the same thing in 2008. Um, six of the nation's top behavioral psychologists. And that dream team was focused on getting out the vote. This dream team, the latest, uh, has a different mission. So we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, also talk about Hillary's highest paid campaign staffer. There's four corner offices in their Brooklyn headquarters. John Podesta, the campaign manager. Um, uh, what's his name? Rob, Robert Mook, uh, who's campaign director. Or maybe I flipped those titles. Uba Abedin, you know her. And then the fourth guy, who's no one's heard of, who's the highest paid of all. Who's that guy? And what does he do? Well, he actually does something that Cruz's campaign did an incredible job with. Now, obviously, it wasn't as successful as I, I thought it would be, actually, uh, with Cruz. But um, I don't know. I, th- I think it's I think it's important. So we'll see if it works or not. But uh, the, you know, Hillary's obviously investing a lot of time and money into this. Uh, I want to start here, though. Was it yesterday? Two days ago? I forget. A couple days ago. I had the chance to talk to Glenn Beck. Um, I want to play that interview. And we'll do a little stop and go. I want to interject a couple points uh, throughout this time here. So uh, this is Glenn Beck uh, from a couple days ago on, on my local show. Liar Crusaders, thanks for being His newest book, Liars, How Progressives Exploit Our Fear for Power and Control, the man who inspired me uh, to get into radio in the first place, a mentor, role model. Glenn Beck. Glenn, how are you, sir? How you doing, Mike? Good to talk to you. Uh, Glenn, be- talk to you. before we get into uh, professional questions here, can I ask you a personal question? So, uh, yeah. I am going to become a dad in four weeks. So, Congratulations. Very excited, obviously. Very excited. So, what is your advice to a new dad? Enjoy every single second, even the bad ones. Because there will come a time when you you even miss them vomiting up on you. <laughs> uh, it goes by so fast, Mike. It's phenomenal. Congratulations! I'm Thanks. so happy. No, we're over the moon. What's um, what's advice on what not to do? Um. Maybe carry it around with you. 
Um, <laughs> yep. I, I, you know, I, I have a, I have a, uh, there, the, you know, parenting is a no-win situation. If you, if you can't let it go, I mean, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to be, you're going to smother them at times. You're not going to be there uh, at times, and. Um, and you just have to do the best you can and let everything else go. Can I tell you? And that's hard. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I went with uh, some friends to like a prison ministry group to our prison here in town on the border. And I asked, we went with a group of 60 prisoners, 40 of them serving life sentences, right? Tattoos all over the face, whole thing. And I told them I'm going to be a dad in a couple weeks. And they all lit up. They're plotting. It was awesome. And I said, guys, what's your advice on, on being a dad? And they gave the best advice, Glenn. Well, the first guy he rose, raised, raised his hand. He said, S- make up a song that only you and your son know, and you can sing it together for the rest of your life together. How cool, right? Like deep, powerful stuff. And one of the guys, he started to cheer up and he said, just be there for your son and said what you just said, do the best you can. It was so powerful because these guys were uh, either speaking based out of regret that they didn't do these things or that these things weren't done for them. And, and I don't know. It was just powerful. Did, to any, of them, did any of them say, because this seems like an obvious one, don't end up in jail. That's, that, be present in your kid's life. Pretty much. Yeah. I think that's part of it. It goes without saying. Um, All right. What, All right. Uh, what makes a man in today's culture, Glenn, where are we headed culturally and, and what kind of men do we need to be? And do we need to raise, you know, Mike, I think you ask the best questions of anyone in the country, and I mean that. Um, uh, let's see. Um, what kind of men do we need to be? We need to be um, brave and fearless. Uh, we need to be um, uh, fierce. Um, but we also at the same time need to be kind and gracious and, um, and, uh, humble. Mm -hmm. We need both sides of great men. Who have you met recently that, that fits one of those characteristics or all of them? I can tell you a woman that I've met that is is many of those things. I've had um, since the um, since the nomination, um, Carly Fiorina and I have become friends, and um, I haven't talked about this with anyone, um, um, but uh, uh, she has she is all of those things. She's one of the the kindest, most thoughtful people. And yet, I wouldn't screw with her. Um, uh, she is she's quite amazing. Another one that I uh, I met a man that I met who is striving to be these things because it's funny because we talked about this and I don't want to get into it because it was a personal conversation. But uh, Mel Gibson. Yep, I heard you talking a little bit about hard, it. Yep. Yeah, working hard to be a good man, mm. a really good man. And that growth is the most important thing, obviously. Um, culturally, like, I, I keep going back and forth on this. I keep going back and forth with 
our culture is slipping away from us. But like, I don't even know what that really means. And then I think, well, no, it's not. Am I just thinking it is or is it or isn't it? And what does that mean? Like our culture slipping away. Like, can you even help me define those words and and that feeling that I think a lot of people have? Yeah, I think it is slipping away, but not in the way people think. Um, uh, the American culture used to be truth, justice, and the American way. Um, and the American way used to be you lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can make it. Um, um, you know, that's why Amway uh, was called Amway. It was make a good product for, uh, you know, less uh, and and make your own way in the world and, and become wealthy by doing good for other people. Um, and uh, that used to be our culture, truth, justice, the American way, kindness, decency, mm-hmm. innocence. Innocence is a big one. Oh, what do you mean we that? were what? That, that's a tough one. What do you mean by that? We're the only um, the only country in the Western world, really, that hasn't had some sort of uh, Gestapo or KGB spies. And um, um, at, at every other country, at some point, they have had, you know, the Inquisition or neighbors turning against neighbors, turning them into the state, mm-hmm. things like that. The only brush we had with that was in the 50s with um, uh, with uh, communism. But that was really pretty much over pretty quickly and and over with uh, with Hollywood only. And because of that, what America always was to people, they'd always come over and they'd say, you guys are so trusting. You're so nice. You're you're so kind. Um, yeah, because we liked everybody and we trusted everybody and we had this innocence to us. I think all that's being lost. I. I I don't know if I even trust the goodness in most Americans anymore. I, I, I don't. I, I don't know who we are anymore. This hey, Brett, can we stop there. The, the can we pause right there for a second. Um, I mean, that's a bold statement at the end there. I, I want to. When we were chatting the other day, and he said that, it reminded me of a story. Uh, I just want to take a time out here from the rest of the interview and, and share it because I asked the type of man we need to be and raise: brave, fearless. Right? It's one side of the coin, and then kind, gracious, humble, and and with an innocence. It's an interesting word. It reminded me of an essay written by Deidre Sullivan about 10 years ago. And she tells the story of her dad uh, when she was 15. Her fifth grade math teacher passed away. And her dad told her that she needed to go to the calling hours. And she didn't want to go. She's a 15-year-old girl. Like, I mean, what, right? She didn't want to go. And dad said, D, you're going. Always go to the funeral. So she went, and and she was the only kid there. She says still today, 20 years later, she'll sometimes run into that teacher's parents, and their eyes swell up because they remember that she went to their daughter's funeral. I want to read this from from Deidre. She says, sounds simple. When someone dies, get in your car and go to calling hours or the funeral. That I can do. But I think a personal philosophy of going to funerals means more than that. Always go to the funeral means that I have to do the right thing when I really, really don't feel like it. I have to remind myself of it 
when I could make some small gesture, but I really don't have to, and I definitely don't want to. I'm talking about those things that represent only an inconvenience to me, but the world to the other guy. You know, the painfully underattended birthday party, the hospital visit during happy hour. I love this line right here. Take this in. Remember this. In my humdrum life, the daily battle has not been good versus evil. It's hardly so epic. Most days, my real battle is doing good versus doing nothing. I love that line. And she goes on. She remembers her dad's funeral. Uh, It was on a Wednesday and, and she was numb for a few days. But in the middle of the funeral, she turned around and saw a church full, not only of loved ones, but of inconvenienced people on a Wednesday at three o'clock. And she said that moment was the most human, powerful and humbling thing she's ever seen because it was a church full of people there for her dad who all believed in going to the funeral. I mean, we want to, we got to talk about all these attributes that Glenn talked about, brave, fearless, but the kind, the gracious, the humble, the innocence That's really just serving, isn't it? And go to the funeral, just giving your time. Let's not lose that. Play a little more of the Glenn Beck interview next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. In the next 19 seconds, you could sell your home. Okay, it's, I mean, it's not going to sell your home, I mean, this, but it, you're going to take a big step toward getting it sold. Go to realestateagentsitrust.com and find an agent selected by my team, a professional who shares your values and speaks the truth. Sell your home fast and for the most money. Get moving at realestateagentsitrust.com. This is Mike Slater. I want to play a little more about our interview with Glenn Beck the other day. Uh, we start talking about uh, culture uh, a little bit deeper here. Let's play a few minutes. But uh, Mel Gibson. Yep, I heard you talk a little bit about hard, it. Yep. Yeah, working hard to be a good man, mm. a really good man. And that growth is the most important thing, obviously. Um, culture, like, what? I, I keep going back and forth on this. I keep going back and forth with our culture slipping away from us, but like, I don't even know what that really means. And then I think, yeah, sorry, well, but I think you can no, jump ahead. Can you jump ahead? Like maybe like two it minutes is or is it, or isn't I'm it? I'm sorry about that. Please hold. We will get to where we are. By the way, I was a cruise delegate in California. Um, wow. When you endorsed cruise, which is fine, obviously, did you sit down and do any calculus, uh, about not only doing that, but any potential alienating of Trump voters. Does that make sense? Like, is there, was there a line? Yeah, no, it wasn't Trump voters that I was worried about. It was all voters that I was worried about. I mean, the business side of me, I did sit down with my business partner. But, you know, I made the decision first, and then I sat down and I said, 
I made this decision. I want to talk to you about it. I'm, I'm not diehard in it if it's, if it's totally deadly. And he said, it's not totally deadly, but it's probably deadly. And uh, um, he said, um, you know, why? You've never done this before. Why? And I said, because I, I think this is the best guy I've seen in my lifetime, and we are at the worst time I've seen in my lifetime. And I, I just think that somebody's got to stand and nobody will. And I can't, I can't, um, as a citizen, I can't, uh, not do all that I can do. If he, if he loses the nomination and I went out and I, I did all I could, I'm okay with that. I can live with that. I can't, if he loses the nomination and I could have done something. So when he lost, I, I was shocked by the American people, but I understood it and I was I was fine with it. Um, uh, what I was the calculus that I missed was quite honestly the tactics of the alt right and the and really the Soros people. Um, uh, you know all of that stuff. All the he's crazy, he's drunk, um, he's a failure, his business is dying. All of those things happened to me when I was at Fox funded by George Soros. And we know it was actually funded by George Soros now because of WikiLeaks. Um, so all of those things were a thing of the past. And I was shocked to see how quickly uh, Trump and his surrogates um, picked up where George Soros left off. I'll, I'll be blunt because because we've known each other a long time, Glenn. Um, one thing to be positive for Cruz, but were the negative things said about Trump too harsh to the point of alienating listeners unnecessarily? Oh, you're asking me if I could go back and do it all over again? Maybe. Um, yeah, I think, you know, yes. Um, I think, I don't think I said anything about Donald Trump that I think is untrue. Did I um, did I express it poorly? Yeah, um, and it's why, honestly, why when Sean Hannity is yelling at me and saying I'm going to hold you responsible and everything else, I understand that. I, I I was angry at the time when when Cruz when my guy was losing and I thought he was the right guy. I completely understand. I, I completely understand what he's going through right now because I already went through it, and. Um, you know, I was angry at the time as well. And so, yeah, did I say things? Sure. Am I am I past that? Yeah, uh, I'm not past getting beaten in the head, but that's OK. <laughs> the 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 the, um, uh, the 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 question is, we're going to need each other no matter who wins in uh, November. Yes. And can we find a way back to each other? Uh, I hope so. Um I hope so. This, this, so a second ago, you said you talked about um, you know, t- trusting each other and maybe even I, I see turning against each other. Right. Like, as, as you're just speaking on. Are you disappointed in people? Because I see a lot of your fan and listeners online, whatever, a bunch of trolls. Who knows? But like, I'm never listening to you again and say these horrible things like you said. Uh, are you disappointed in people throughout this process? No, I tell you, Mike, my, I mean, I don't you know, don't believe all the things that you read. My audience is up by 25 percent. Up. Why do you think twenty five percent? Why do you think that is? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I really don't. Um, 
I, I, I don't know. Maybe because what I'm saying on the air now, I'm the only one now saying it, um, at least nationally. Um, uh, but I, I, I don't, I don't know. What I stop. am disappointed in. We can stop here. We got, we got to stop here. Um, I want to come back. We'll break down a little bit of that. You got, we're not going to have time to play the whole interview. You can check all that out at the blaze.com slash radio. Uh, it's under Glenn Beck's uh, account. Uh, you can hear the full interview, the rest of it, but I want to talk about a Berkeley sociologist who, who trying to understand you. And we'll talk about her attempt at that. And we'll tie it back into what you just heard from Glenn. That's coming up. Mike Slater show with the blaze radio Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Uh, again, the rest of that interview is on Glenn Beck's uh, radio.com uh, slash, sorry, theplays.com slash radio. And under Glenn Beck's account, uh, you can hear the rest of that interview there. But we were talking about culture, um, and, and I came across this book from a Berkeley sociologist, University of Berkeley in California, who wanted to understand middle America, wanted to understand you. So she traveled to a town in Louisiana. And she went there 10 times over five years, which I don't understand that. Like, I don't know why you wouldn't, wouldn't move there and spend a whole year or something. But I think 10 times over five years is not that much. But uh, interviewed 60 people, 40 of them Tea Party members, in order to, quote, delve into her keen interest in how life feels to people on the right. That is, in the emotion that underlies politics. And to understand their emotions, I had to, this is what she says, I had to imagine myself in their shoes. Now, I haven't had a chance to read the book, but this is the book review from the Washington Post. Uh, this sociologist preps for her conservative immersion by reading Atlas Shrugged. Because we know Tea Party types are into that. She says, if Ayn Rand appealed to them, I imagined, they'd probably be pretty selfish, tough, cold people. And I prepared for the worst, but I was thankful to discover many warm, open people who were deeply charitable to those around them. When she landed in Louisiana the first time, she says, quote, I was definitely not in Berkeley, California. No New York Times at the newsstand. Almost no organic produce in grocery stores or farmers markets. No foreign films in movie houses. Few small cars, fewer petite sizes in clothing stores burn Fewer pedestrians speaking foreign languages into cell phones. Indeed, fewer pedestrians. There were fewer yellow Labradors and more pit bulls and bulldogs. Forget bicycle lanes, color-coded recycling bins, or solar panels on roofs. And in some cafes, virtually everything on the menu was fried. So the reviewer, reviewer of the book goes on to say that it's quite a condescending book, as you can probably imagine from that quote right there. But the thing that stands out to me, I haven't read it, but... I think it shows how a sociologist at Berkeley views people in Louisiana as, as almost foreigners, right? Like 
I have to travel there to understand them. <laughs> and I know there's different parts of the country and everyone's different. And that's fine. But like this comes from a very like, what? Like who? I don't. We got We got to. Who are these? people? Like very weird. Almost like like specimens. Like we're like, <laughs> and, and it's it's odd that people in Louisiana are so not understood that they need to be studied and written about. It's not good. But even then, uh, she's shocked to find how nice people are, <laughs> right? How kind and decent people generally are. I, uh, I'll share, well, I'll share a couple hodgepodge things. So I just got an idea here, added a couple weeks ago. I read that headline news, CNN headline news, their number one part of the country, like the, the, where they do the best in the country is in the middle of the country. Right? Those are the people that watch CNN headline news the most, not CNN, CNN headline news, Robin Mead in the morning, right? People in the middle of the country. And it got me thinking, are there any other TV shows other than Glenn's, of course, that are not in New York or LA or DC? Why not? So a couple weeks ago, obviously before it got canceled, I guest hosted the Dr. Drew show on Headline News. And I go to LA and I've been on it, I don't know, five times. And I got to drive to LA. It's, it's up with traffic. It could be like three hours. But it's like two hours away. So I drive up to LA and the first time I went, that, that show is dripping with Los Angeles. It's, it's I, I, don't, I can't even describe it. It's just, it's so LA, which is fine, but... I don't think people, I used to live in Tennessee. I don't think people in Tennessee want to see a show that's just Los Angeles. Not a news show. And everybody's perspective there is from Los Angeles because they've been born and raised in Los Angeles. That's where they live. And that's where they walk around. This is Los Angeles. And why? Why is there no show out of Nashville? Seriously, I, mean, I guess CNN has some stuff out of Atlanta, but even Atlanta's not even, right? But like, why is there no show out of, I don't know, Oklahoma or Texas? How can that be? Isn't that weird? I just feel it would have a it would have a different vibe to it that I think people would um, would like more. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I want to go back to the, the how good, uh, kind, and and decent people are. We had a uh, so I'm gonna have I'm gonna be a dad in four weeks. What the heck? Maybe like three and some change now. So a couple months ago, we had a gender reveal party at my house. I don't know if you're familiar with the gender reveal party. It's kind of a new concept. I told my mom, uh, I went to a buddy's gender reveal party and she thought it was someone who's transgender and they're they're It's like they have a big party to reveal their gender. Like now I'm a woman like that. That's, that's not what it is. It's when you find out the gender of your baby. All right. So we had a gender reveal party and there was one couple there. And they stuck around and they cleaned up everything for us. And we were off distracted. We were talking to a couple other friends and we turned around and everything was picked up. Everything was put away. Everything was cleaned up. It was amazing. Those are my favorite kind of people. Those who just serve. That is just a kindness and decency that, that I love. I don't know. I, I keep going back and forth. My wife does too. Just the other day, 
She said, Mike, we are in the minority. We are in the minority. And I said, no, we're not. I promise you we're not. And then sometimes I do think we're in the minority. Here's an example of what I mean by minority. Time Magazine this week has a 4,000 word story. That's a big, long human interest story on a woman who now identifies as male and he's pregnant. And, and Time Magazine thinks that that's amazing and, and worthy of this big story, right? Man gets pregnant. No, that's, that's, not, what, that's not what happened. Man did not get pregnant. Woman who took hormones, kept her uterus, and surgically removed her breasts got pregnant. But the whole time, still a woman. So... I don't get the big deal. Right? So I don't know. You see stuff like this, like time magazine, like pushing that. And you're like, gosh, are we in the minority? No, you're not. It's just because everything's controlled out of DC, New York and LA. And those places are crazy. You can't get me to move to, to live in LA. You can't do it. So I'm in San Diego. I'm some, should be two hours away from LA, but a world of difference. You want to know what the difference is? If you're not familiar with uh, Southern California, uh, so we'll work from south. You got Mexico, and then you got San Diego, and then if you go a little more north, two hours, you got L.A. But in between New York and L.A., do you know what there is? Camp Pendleton, giant Marine military base. So you're driving through San Diego, and it's amazing, and then you get to Camp Pendleton. It's just nothing for 30 minutes of driving, and then it's you cross that line, boom, and you're in Orange County and then L.A., and it's like, whoa, this place is totally different and horrible (laughs) and that's the best thing about san diego is we're protected uh from la sprawl by uh, a military base it's huge it's awesome and the thing is you don't even here in san diego you don't need to go far to find the good decent people You, you don't actually you don't need to go anywhere no matter where you are i promise you you're not in the minority you're not There are good people like you everywhere. We just need to do good over doing nothing to go back into the story about always go to the funeral. Right? Let me read that line again. Let me pull this line back up here. I wrote it down because it was such a good line. Here it is. Um, She said, in my humdrum life, the daily battle has not been good versus evil. It's hardly so epic. Most days, my real battle is doing good versus doing nothing. So if, if we all just choose to do good over nothing, the more we all do that, the more we will see we're not alone. And that's exciting. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. segment a quick preview of what we got coming up in the next segment about hillary and her 
psychologist dream team that she has assembled. We'll tell you what that is and, and what they're for. Um, but I want to talk about Trump here for a minute. So Trump, <laughs> what the psychologists are doing for Hillary is what Trump has 50 years of practice doing as a businessman, as a real estate developer. It's learning how to read people, learning how to gain leverage quickly, getting the upper hand with the turn of a phrase, thinking quickly, speaking quickly, um, being charismatic when necessary and tough when necessary. I witnessed that firsthand. I, when I, we did the 90-minute interview with him, I guess it was over a year ago. Was it Christmas? Yeah, it was, it was Christmas time. So almost a year. Uh, we did a 90-minute interview in, in uh, Trump Tower, and I, I went to meet him and, in his office, and it was me and the guy who organized the interview. And the guy goes, uh, Mr. Trump, I'd like to introduce you to uh, Mike Slater. He's a radio show host. He's going to be interviewing for the 90 minutes. And Donald Trump goes, uh, please, please, I know who he is. And then looks at me and goes, you have a great reputation. And I said, oh, 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 and then four seconds later, I'm like, oh, you don't know who I am. Like, you, <laughs> you, tried, you tried to get me there, but it still felt good. <laughs> right. So that that's his, you know, oh, I'm endearing myself to you. Yeah, no big love fest, right? You're going to be on my side now, right? It's like, that's what that is. And he's good at it. But don't think for a second, if he's in a business meeting and he's not, he doesn't need to, you know, be the tough guy. He won't do that in a second as well. If it. If it suits him, that's a skill set. You can like it or not. I think it's righteous or not or whatever, but that's a skill set he's learned after 50 years. Now, that's my um, build up to a, something he said at the uh, forum the other day with Matt Lauer. The other day, he got the national security briefings, and, and they do this when someone becomes the nominee. I'm not sure what they share, how much they share, or anything, but uh, you get some behind the scenes briefing from top military intelligence people. So this is first MSNBC, and then they play a clip from the National Defense Forum, 1159. Donald Trump at the Commander-in-Chief Forum last night insinuated that the body language of intelligence officials during the briefings he has received showed they're not happy with President Obama. Take a listen. And I was very, very surprised in almost every instance. And I could tell, I have pretty good with the body language, I could tell they were not happy. Our leaders did not follow what they were recommending. The left's freaking out about that. Right? They're freaking out. They're saying, what? What? How can, how can Donald Trump say that he can read body language of, of the people giving the briefing? That's outrageous. This is Mike Hayden, former CIA NSA director. He hates Trump. He says, the I can read body language line was quite remarkable. I am confident Director Clapper sent senior professionals to this meeting and so I am equally confident that no such body language ever existed. It's simply not what we do. So there you have Mike Hayden saying that senior intelligence professionals don't have body language, <laughs> which is insane. Everyone is body language. That's 80% of how you communicate body language. So these senior officials have been trained to remove 80% of their human communication ability at whim. Is that what, is that what we're trying to be told? Trump showed his hand to us, right? We've been analyzing Trump and his campaign from this perspective the whole time. And here he is saying, listen, I'm really good at body language. And that's a skill set you learn and you master during business deals. And he's really good at it. Not only analyzing other people's, but having it himself as well. I'll give you an example. 
I was watching Meet the Press daily the other day, and they were debating because uh, Hillary said, or Trump said of Hillary, she doesn't look presidential. So they had their roundtable discussion. They're like, oh, was it sexist? Oh, yeah, so sexist. Unbelievable. She doesn't look presidential. That's sexist. Blah, 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 blah. And then someone said something like, you know, Trump has a history of caring too much about how people look, employees and his campaign staff. And Chuck Todd said, yes, he only hires campaign surrogates for TV who look good talking when on mute. Why? Because he's a sexist, misogynist pig? No. Because he knows that what you see is far more important and influential than what you hear. People think that words matter, and they do, of course, but body language. First of all, tone is more important than the words, and body language is far more influential than anything else. And if you really want to know who wins a debate, watch it on mute. Trump knows that, and that's why somehow Chuck Todd found out that he only hires campaign surrogates on TV who, who look good talking while on mute because that's how people really interpret what they're seeing. Now, you say, Slater, this is total nonsense what you're saying. Well, Hillary Clinton just devised her own behavioral psychologist dream team, just like President Obama did in 2008, but they have a different task this go-around. We'll talk about that next. And if this wasn't important, then why would she do it? She's trying to play catch up with Trump on this. Talk about it next. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So, I think this is really interesting, and uh, we'll see if she can pull it off. And if she does, I'll explain what that means in a second, then I think what I'm about to tell you has something major to do with it. So, we'll back it up a second. From day one of the, the primary, really. We've been taking what I think is a unique approach to this campaign. Everyone else, every other radio show host, it's fine. I'm not, everyone's going to do what they got to do. They, they give their opinion on this or that, and that's it. But we decided to take a different angle and talk about what's, how do I wear this? Like, like what's actually happening in front of us? Like, how are people being influenced? Why are, are things happening the way they are? Not just reacting to things, but saying, hey, th- look look at how this worked. Here's how that didn't work. Here's why what Trump said or Hillary said is going to be very effective. Here's why that's not effective, right? Trying to explain things a little bit because everyone else is talking about things in different ways. So we thought, okay, well, let's do it this way and then maybe everything else will make a little more sense. That's our approach. This is why we've talked a lot about Trump's branding and marketing skills and his business negotiation skills a little bit we talked about in the last segment um how that affects his rhetoric which persuades people in in powerful ways like how does it do that though 
And we've been talking again for over a year. We drew on historical examples from P.T. Barnum and, and Thomas Edison and how these guys knew the value of keeping the spotlight on them. They knew how to move audiences. I, I won't say manipulate people. That has a negative connotation, but sure. We've talked about advertising and marketing and why marketers use certain colors. And if, you, if you've heard this uh, that segment, then I'm going to say something here that'll ring a bell. How marketers use certain colors and, and phrases and fonts that are pleasing to the autopilot brain things that are pleasing to the autopilot brain because most of the time our brains are on autopilot. So how do you get through to an autopilot brain? Well, things need to be pleasing. And we've related that to different campaigns. So you get the idea. Now, when I come across articles like this, I know that we're moving in the right direction with our coverage. This is the New York Times headline. Um, Let me just get into it. Hillary Clinton's advisors are talking to Donald Trump's ghostwriter of The Art of the Deal, seeking insights into Mr. Trump's deepest insecurities as Clinton devises strategies to needle and undermine him in four weeks at the presidential debate, the most anticipated in a generation. Her team is also getting advice from psychology experts. Psychology experts? (laughs) Let Let me pause here. So eight years ago, Barack Obama put together what's called the Behavioral Psychologist Dream Team. And there's five or six psychologists. And they really focused on how to talk to people to get them to vote. So this is more like a get out the vote thing. We've given many, many examples before. I'll just give a very quick one just so you kind of see where we're going or what he was doing generally. Um, If you knock on the door, they figured out that if you knock on a door and say, hey, um, are you going to vote for Barack Obama tomorrow? That's okay. Fine. What's way more influential is, hello, uh, I'm here with uh, Barack Obama for president. Did you know that a majority of your neighbors are voting for Barack Obama tomorrow? Are you going to vote for Barack Obama tomorrow? Right. You can see how more influential that is. And it's, a lot more influential. So they that's one example. They did many other things. Hillary's behavioral psychologist dream team is a little bit different. Their job, and I'm quoting from the New York Times, is to help create a personality profile of Mr. Trump to gauge how he may respond to attacks and deal with a woman as his sole adversary on the debate stage. They are undertaking, and imagine them doing this, a forensic style analysis of Mr. Trump's performances in the Republican primary debates, cataloging strengths and weaknesses, as well as trigger points that caused him to lash out in a less than presidential way. So we got a couple things going on here. First of all, you'll notice Hillary's not combing over policy papers. People will call in a lot, send me emails a lot, and they're saying, Slater, like, you say this thing that Trump said is influential. You say it's persuasive, but there's no policy there. And it's like, yeah, no one's influenced by policy. Very few. You are, right? Because you're smart, but you're listening right here on Saturday morning. You listen to the show. Most people don't care about policy. Most people don't know policy. So policy doesn't move the masses. Policy doesn't change hearts and minds. 
I love policy. I wish it did. I wish policy was all people talked about. I'll give you an example. Nike. Okay, you watch a Nike commercial. Nike does not have any commercials that say, check out our latest shoe. It's made with the newest space-aged synthetic plastic that uh, is lighter and will make you jump tall. They don't say that. They show a picture of LeBron James dunking a basketball. They don't don't talk policy. Nike doesn't talk policy. They play the persuasion game. Storytelling. Hillary's trying to learn how to win the persuasion game. Not with policy. Now, here's the thing about this persuasion game. Trump is already a master at it. And I'll just, I'll cut to the chase here. Hillary is dedicating the next month to something that Trump has dedicated the last 50 years to. Let me say it again. Hillary is dedicating the next month to the team of advisors and psychologists and all the rest. She's dedicating the next month to something that Trump has dedicated the last 50 years to. He knows how to read people in a split second. He knows how to gain leverage in a split second. He knows how to spin things in a second. This is what makes him good at business. And if not just business, a real estate developer. This is why we've talked about Trump's use of energy and posture and stagecraft. He gets this stuff. My favorite example of this, and there's many, but my favorite example was after the Fox News debate in the primary. So Trump is uh, 6'2", Bill O'Reilly 6'4". Donald Trump walked off the stage down on the ground floor, right, where all the people were. Bill O'Reilly walks up to him. As Bill O'Reilly's walking to him, Donald Trump takes a step back onto the stage. Why? Because Trump wanted to be the tallest person on the TV. He wanted to be taller. He didn't want to be seen standing next to a a giant Bill O'Reilly. So he takes a step back and Bill O'Reilly, who also understands TV and energy, says, no, 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 no. Take a step back down here with me. Wild, right? Glenn Beck a while ago gave the example. He did a side-by-side of uh, Ted Cruz doing a Fox News interview. And there were cables on the ground and water bottles. And they were sitting in these, these dumpy chairs and the lighting was terrible. And Donald Trump did an interview and it was pristine. No, no wires. No water bottles. The lighting was perfect. Big boom cameras that are super expensive to, to own and operate and all the rest. No way would have Donald Trump, no way would Donald Trump have walked on stage that Ted Cruz did. Why did Ted Cruz? Because he doesn't think that way. He's a policy guy. He doesn't think TV. He doesn't think persuasion. He doesn't think stagecraft. Donald Trump does. Businessman and TV guy. So I know I'm peppering a lot here, but the point is Hillary know, knows none of this. None of it. She surrounds herself with expensive marketers, not good ones, expensive ones who are terrible. That's why she's gone through 12 different campaign slogans. And they finally settled on stronger together, or what, <laughs> which is nothing. I think that was like a L'Oreal ad campaign a long time ago, like whatever. You go around to anyone and you say, make America great again, they know exactly what you're talking about. You go up to someone and say, make work stronger together. Like, huh? Now, I don't think slogans are important but just as an example of how how they're on totally different levels so for the next few weeks she's not going to focus on policy but on persuasion 
How can she knock Trump off of his game? By trying to get a rise out of him, right? So they're looking at personality profiles of, of, uh, of arrogant people, which Trump is, right? Of, of powerful of people like this, like these warrior alpha males. How can you get under their skin? You can't out policy them. That's because it doesn't. It, um, not Warren Buffett. Um, William Buckley. William Buckley said, "Never try to debate a non-debater." Because you're using, uh, you know, all these skill sets, and the non-debater is like, "What, huh?" And, you just, and they just they crush you with this line. You're like, "What?" That, huh? So never try to debate a non-debater. Hillary can't debate him with policy. He'll just doesn't matter. He'll just he'll spin around and say something that that people actually understand. Fascinating, isn't it? So anyway, just just to show the other side, the article goes on and talks about how Trump is doing no debate prep at all. <laughs> He's doing nothing. I'll read this last part here. For Mrs. Clinton, who can appear most at peace with a briefing book in her hand, there's no such thing as too much preparation. Uh, goes on and talks about how they, they've uh, reached out to the co-author of Art of the Deal, who hates Trump, who spent 18 months with him in uh, you know mid-80s. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Better understand how to get under skin. <laughs> These Clinton advisors agree with Mr. Trump's belief that the debate will not be remembered as pitting a policy expert against a Washington outsider. Instead, her campaign is preparing ways for her to unnerve Mr. Trump and provoke him to rant and rave. The Clinton camp believes, so make note of this when you hear it, this is why the Clinton camp believes that Mr. Trump is most insecure about his intelligence his net worth, and his image as a successful businessman. And those are the areas they are working with Mrs. Clinton to target. So again, Trump, this stuff comes naturally. He doesn't need a team of psychologists. He doesn't need people figuring out where he needs to target or whatever. He just gets it. And that's what this election is about. Oh, Slater, it shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is. I'll end with this. Clinton brought in three people to play the part of Donald Trump in mock debates. Three people. Mark Cuban, who you'll remember half-jokingly about a year ago, I said that Mark Cuban's going to be Donald Trump's vice president. I was half-joking. I was kind of serious. I was half-serious, but then half-joking just to get people to think out of the box about what this campaign really is. So in a way, like me bringing up Mark Cuban, like I couldn't have been more wrong and more right kind of at the same weird time, right? Um, so Mark Cuban, and he's a lot like Trump because of his bravado and arrogance and showmanship and all that. James Carville, who's quick on his feet and tough, right? And you know the third person? A congressman, a Democratic congressman. From where? Queens. Why? It's Trump's hometown. So the psychologist said, hey, let's bring in someone from Queens and figure out how they think, how they talk, how they operate. And let's analyze that and, and apply it to, to Donald Trump. Fascinating. In the end, I, I get it shows they're just playing catch up and they're terrified of him. They don't know what to do. 
because Hillary's somewhere between a policy wonk and a robot. And she'll either malfunction on stage or have a coughing fit. I don't know. Maybe both. I don't know. Interesting. So we'll see how it all plays out. If, if, if Hillary's successful at it, then you can you know who to credit and you know where that came from. But I don't think you can do it in a month of cramming. Not when you're going against someone who's been doing it for 50 years. one 888 Slater Radio on uh, Twitter. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater. Slater, I got one more uh, story about Hillary's campaign. I'll do it in the next segment here. Uh, it's these two things together. The psychologist I was just talking about and her new approach to, to not try to out-policy Trump uh, or it's not even out-policy Trump. It's just present policy. Like it's not even, she's like, finally, they, people finally, the left is finally, that's not what it's about. In, in this election, but you got to persuade people. Uh, so they're trying to play Trump's game. So uh, it's that. And what I'll tell you about next, if both those things work, all right, if she can execute the first thing and I don't know if she can, what I was just talking about, I don't think she can execute that, but if she can, and if the second thing, which she's not doing, but other people are, um, if that pulls through, then that's her only chance. It's her only chance to win. Oh, I think she'll, I, I don't know if I've, had said this a long time. I think Trump will win and then I'll buy a lot. But these two things, and really it all, I, that's where the giant asterisks of it all comes down to this first debate. It's not even the other debates. It's really the first debate is all that really matters. Um, and that that's the big game changer one way or the other. But if things keep going like it is, then Trump will definitely win. One of, and here, one, well, I guess I can start here. Um, I guess I can, I can use this to back up. Um, One of the best analyses, analyses I've heard is from a, uh, a TV executive. He said, Trump has already won. Now, this guy's super far on the left. Okay, okay, this is the guy who's the co-founder with Al Gore of current TV. Okay? So that's, this guy is crazy on the left. And he's like, everyone, hey, Trump already won. Trump won when the History Channel the History Channel went from showing documentaries of World War II to swamp people. Trump won when the Learning Channel went from showing operas to My 600-Pound Life. He told, he told this fact here, which is crazy. When they pick a new Nielsen family. So Nielsen is how TV does their ratings and radio. It's called Arbitron and TV. It's called Nielsen. So they find a certain number of people and they, they, the people have to agree to have what they watch noted, right? they put something in the TV set uh, and it, and it keeps track of what you're watching. Okay. And then they extrapolate that for a hundred thousand people, right? So if you're watching something, then they say, Oh, a hundred thousand people are watching this. That's, it's really arcane system, but that's what it is. So they get a Nielsen family. They select a new family and they watch, they monitor what they watch, but they dis, and I think you have to sign up for, in radio, you have to sign up to be an Arbitron family for two years. I don't know how it works in TV. 
but you have to do it for a while. With the Nielsen family, they disregard what you watch for the first three months. They don't, they don't, they don't account the first three months of you watching TV. Why? Because people say, oh, uh, well, uh, I, I'm going to watch uh, PBS tonight because I'm so smart. And they watch because they, they know they're being watched, right? So, they're, oh, I'm going to watch uh, this documentary here. And then three months later, they go back to watching Pawn Stars, right? <laughs> but it takes three months. So this guy's saying, listen, there's so many more people who are voting for Trump and you, no one even realizes it. Because a poller will call him up. Who are you voting for? And a lot of people, especially if their wife is nearby, who deep down, like Trump, deep down, they'll say Hillary. He guy says, Trump is just like your favorite TV show. This is why Trump's campaign manager, Bannon, is a TV executive. This guy says, Trump is great TV. He says, Hillary is crap TV. I'll give you an example of that. A couple days ago, there was dueling events. Hillary Clinton had an event. Donald Trump had an event. Same time, all three networks carried Trump. All of them. Hillary's trying to overcome this deficit with those psychologists to help her better understand what Trump is so good at. Trump's already won. If you disagree, it's probably because you think Trump has no grasp on policy. It's true, maybe. But it's cute that you think that that's how most people make decisions on who to vote for president. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Who's that? Who said? All right, one last Hillary story that I'm done talking about her. I'm just I'm done talking about Trump too. Move on to some other things. Um, where to start? Where to start? I said this about Ted Cruz. So I was a Cruz delegate in uh, in California. By the way. And people get, I, like, people get mad at me when I say Trump's going to win in a landslide. I was a Cruz dad. I would have preferred that Cruz win in a landslide. <laughs> but here we are. Now, back during the primary, I said pretty early that Cruz's biggest secret weapon is his data mining campaign. You know when you're, you're let's say you're shopping, uh, let's say you're shopping for a TV online, right? And you search uh, TV Best Buy, right, for a couple minutes. And then uh, you don't buy anything and you leave and you come back to your computer the next day. And every website, all the ads are about TVs. You're like, what? how do they do that? And I've even had like creepy examples. I've had, like I've looked up, I don't remember anymore, but like like a, a side table, right, for our house. Like we need a new coffee table or something. And then the next week, furniture catalogs come in the mail. You're like, well, how did that? Right, stuff like that all the time. 
How do they do that? Ted Cruz's campaign had an unparalleled data mining operation. They knew everything about certain voters based off of magazine subscriptions, pages you like on Facebook, what car you drive, stuff like that. And they could pinpoint you down with incredible accuracy. Incredible accuracy. Like creepy accuracy. Let's just an example. So, so I'm going to have a kid in four weeks. And they might see... A, no, I'm, just, I'm not just talking about Cruz, but there's different political campaigns. Actually, let me do a timeout here. There, I can't tell you exactly what this is about yet. I will soon. Uh, we're not allowed. It's all, it was off the record now. But there's a certain local issue here in San Diego. And... The people in charge of getting us, uh, of convincing voters to support it. I managed to back it up again. In California, we have this crazy system called propositions. So even though the goons up in Sacramento work all year round and make over $100,000 a year, we still have these props every election where we, the people, vote on different things. And I get it. You're like, oh, the people get to decide. But it's also super annoying and like not efficient or effective way of governing. But anyway... We have 18 propositions that we're voting on this year. So it's crazy. One of the propositions, the people who want us to vote yes on it, they've done this data mining. So they've given every voter, every potential voter, a numerical ranking from one to five. If you're a one, then you're never going to vote for this no matter what. So there's no way. If you're a five, then you're absolutely going to vote for it. There's nothing that could persuade you otherwise. There. So, and two threes and fours are on that scale. And they do this because they're not going to target ads towards the ones because that's a waste. They're never going to vote for it. And they're not going to target ads towards the fives because they're always going to vote for it. So why, why waste your time? So they're going to target ads on two, three, and four. Now, not only are they going to target the people, they know the, you know, they know whether or not you're likely to vote for this issue or not, which is weird. But they know why. They know why you are not likely to vote for it. And they know what they need to say and how they need to say it in order to convince you. They know what argument would work best for you. And not only what argument, but how to make the argument. How can that be? And this is for a local issue now. It's one thing if you do this for a national campaign. This is for a local issue they're able to target it down like that. It's wild. Now, how do they do that? I don't know. On my local show, we've tried reaching out to the people who do this, or at least the people who did this with Cruz's campaign, and they don't want to say anything. I don't know how they do it. Now, I know some things, right? Some things can kind of make sense. So again, I'm having a kid in a couple weeks. Um, They may be able to tell that my wife liked some Facebook page for new moms or something. And then we register for, you know, on Target, or Amazon or something, and Amazon subscribes us to a new parents magazine. Okay, so th- those things are a pretty good hint that we're about to have a kid. So Cruz's campaign and other campaigns, I'm assuming now, would send us mailers that are specifically about issues that new parents might care about. Child care, health care, whatever. They're not going to send, you know, my mom a thing about child care. They're going to send her something about Social Security, they're going to send me something about child care or whatever. You see, see how they're tailoring issues now. 
Now, I said that this was going to change the game for Cruz. Obama did it in 2008 a little bit. The technology wasn't quite there yet. Cruz took it to a whole new level. An all new, well, although a creepy level. Now, it didn't change the game like I thought it would. And I'm not sure why, to be honest. I'm really curious about the postmortem on it. But people aren't giving up on it. That local issue that I was telling you about and Hillary. Politico wrote an article the other day. Fascinating. There's, uh, they got their offices, right? Offices in their headquarters in Brooklyn. There's four corner offices in this campaign headquarters. Four corner offices. Uma Abedin, John Podesta, who's the campaign chairman, and the campaign manager, Robbie Mook. Okay? If you're into politics, if you follow, those three names are familiar. And then, the fourth corner office, Elon Kriegel. Elon Kriegel? Who's Elon Kriegel? His windows have all these marker writings all over it. It looks like out of a beautiful mind or something, right? And these are the algorithms on his window. Write them on the window. These are the algorithms that are the basis of nearly all of Clinton's strategic decisions. I'll quote from Politico. What cities Clinton campaigns in, what states she competes in, when she emails supporters, how the emails are crafted, what doors volunteers knock on, what phone numbers they dial, who gets Facebook ads, who gets printed mailers. All of these have Kriegel's coding fingerprints on them. To understand Kriegel's role is to understand how Clinton has run her campaign precise and efficient, meticulous and effective, and yes, at times more mathematical than inspirational. Top Clinton advisors say almost no major decision is made in Brooklyn without first consulting Kriegel. He was one of her first hires and among her highest paid and yet remains virtually unknown outside the cloistered community of political number crunchers. Check this out. He's got a team, this Elon Kriegel guy. He's got a team under him of 60 mathematicians. Six, zero, 60 mathematicians. I don't know if, if Trump has expanded his team, but I know at one point he had 70 total people on his campaign team. Total complete. He had, this guy's 60 mathematicians. Clinton has 60 mathematicians. And they did something uh, in, in the primary. And he devised this system called cost per flippable delegate to figure out which delegates they needed to target. Right? So they, they looked at what, net, what markets to buy ads in, which networks, which TV networks, what shows in order to, again, target the, the most receptive audience. It's wild. Also, one more thing. They know when to target you. So they know, okay, let me, I'll do this one last time. They know who to talk to, who not to talk to, how to talk to them. So they, they know your personality if you are someone who's more quick, short to the point, or if you, you like deeper conversations about issues, right? So they know how to talk to you. They know what to say. They know what the most important issues to you probably are. They know also when to say it. Meaning, should they contact you 90 days before the election or the night before? How? <laughs> How did they know that? That's creepy, but that's got to be effective, doesn't it? That's got to be important and valuable information. I mean, I guess you can decide how, how influential that is. I think it's something. I guess we'll all see soon enough. I think it's important. And if there, however, though, however, 
if there was one person who could overcome this super precise data mining operation, it'd be someone like Trump, who's just this just massive air assault campaign. Uh, but I think he's the only person who could beat this. And by the way, in the article, they talk about how Republicans are years behind the Democrats in this data mining stuff, which is weird because I don't know why that would be. Just catch up. Like, what's the, what's the holdup? Weird. Anyway, so something to keep in mind. So to bring these two things together, last segment talked about her psychologist dream team trying to l- teach Hillary in three now weeks how to be more like Trump in a debate. That is up to her whether or not she can pull that off. And then you have that t- uh, next to this uh, data mining, which is not up to her, but uh, we'll see if that is effective. If she can do both those things, then uh, that's why she will win. If she does, I don't think she will. But if she does, those are the only two things I can save her. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater so did you hear the president uh in laos the other day we call it laos i think my understanding is the people in laos call it lao i don't know but he called uh the american people lazy our president called us lazy twice like two times called (laughs) in the same event what in the world uh the first was in regard to uh, our environmental policy um and our, our lack of desire to invest in renewable energies. And then the other one, I got the clip here, but whatever, it doesn't matter. And I'll play this. This other one here is, um, he says we're lazy. Well, here, I'll quote it. The United States, the United States is and can be a force for good in the world. But because we're such a big country, we haven't always had to know about other parts of the world. If, the, if you're in the United States, sometimes you can feel lazy and think we're so big and we don't have to really know about other people. I mean, like, who, who, who's this for? Like, what, <laughs> what do you, why are you going around the world and say, calling us lazy twice? Now I got three minutes here. Let me make another case here about, uh, can I do this quickly? I'll try. This is from Max Boot. Super smart historian. I think he's at the Council on Foreign Relations right now. The president said this in Laos. Uh, over nine years, the, uh, from 1964 to 1973, the United States dropped more than 2 million tons of bombs here in Laos. More than we dropped in Germany and Japan combined during all of World War II. As one Laotian said, the bombs fell like rain. Villages and entire valleys were obliterated. Goes on and on and on. Innocent men, women, children were killed. Today, I stand with you in acknowledging the suffering and sacrifices on all sides of the conflict. Okay. When conservatives talk about the president's apology tour, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Now, he went on to pledge $90 million a year to help defuse the bombs that were dropped during the Vietnam War, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. But, like, context. Give context to this. Here, let me quote from Max Boot. 
He said someone who listened to Obama's speech and knew nothing of Laos's history would have been left mystified about why the U.S. dropped bombs like rain on that country. Did Americans harbor irrational fear and prejudice of Laotians? Were the Johnson and Nixon administration motivated by racial, racial prejudice? Perhaps they were simply staffed by psychopaths and war criminals who enjoyed annihilating small countries. Hardly. What Obama did not mention was that in 1959, in preparation for its invasion of South Vietnam, North Vietnam invaded Laos in order to establish a major segment of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, bringing weapons, supplies, and manpower from north to south. North Vietnam also sponsored and supported with its own troops a communist insurgency to overthrow the royal government of Laos. The U.S. responded to this communist aggression by providing covert and overt aid to the government of Laos and to the Hmong militias who were fighting the communists. The most capable American-supported leader was Vang Pao, a Hmong tribesman who was a general in the Lao army. Eventually, he led as many as 40,000 guerrillas fighting the communists and the North Vietnamese army. The U.S. bombing of Laos was conducted in support of Vang Pao and other anti-communist fighters and as a part of a general effort to disrupt the Ho Chi Minh Trail, the logistics line that enabled aggression against a sovereign state allied with the United States. Okay, there's some context for you. Now, we can talk about the details of the bombings and all that, all right? But to just generally criticize our bombings in Laos as some sort of reckless and random and psychopathic aggression and murdering of civilians, and to talk about it in this vacuum as if there is no context at all, it's irresponsible. Now, why? what's one dangerous reason? Because Lao today is run by a dictator, just like Iran and Cuba, where the president has done similar things. And the dictator takes stuff like that and says, see, our problems today are caused by America, not by me, they're caused by America. Even the president of the United States said so. What are you doing? Like, yes, talk about the bombs and this, and we'll give the 90 mil, and we'll work it out, and we'll fix it, and blah, blah, blah. But give a little context here. Otherwise, the dictator spins it around and says, look, the president admitted that he bombed women and children and villages. Like, what is that? That's the apology tour that conservatives are critical of. He is not a spokesman for freedom and for American values. He's not. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. For Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. In the world, this story did not get as much attention this week as I thought it would. Um, I just want to mention it here and then go into some deeper issues that I think it uncovers here that I think are very important, way more, way more important than than this specific story, because we've seen this routine. So many times, I'm bored by it. I don't care. I'm over stuff like this, right? Where a celebrity says something that's not politically correct, and then they grovel this fake apology, and we all go on with our lives. I'm just over it. That being said, I've never seen a groveling apology like this. This is from ESPN radio host Paul Feinbaum. 
He was doing an interview uh, with Marcus Spears, who played for the Cowboys for like nine years, and now he's an NFL analyst. And Feinbaum said this on his show, 1135. The genesis of this flag goes back to the War of 1812. And I I just really don't understand. uh, I mean, again, back not to look at the country back then, but the two just... This this country has issues, but this country is not oppressing black people. I don't think it is. It's oppressing black people, but I will say this: there are major issues, but that's it's the underservice of the community. Yeah, it's basically what it boils. It's a different out. issue, though. It's a different issue. Okay, he says there are issues. Agrees that there's an underservice of the community. Repeats, there are issues, but says black people aren't being oppressed. This, of course, in relation to Kaepernick's uh, grandstanding. That's a fine bomb says. The black guy on the show agreed with him. What's the problem? <laughs> so let's chat about this. Oppressed means literally to press down. Are black people systematically being pressed down today? He says no, qualifies it again a hundred times with there are major issues. And there are issues, and we talk about those all the time, and we try to solve them. But to say that black people are being oppressed does no one any favors. Doesn't do black people any favors. Doesn't do kids any favors. Doesn't solve anything. Because no one who says that cites a specific problem. They just say, oh, oppressed. But as we said in our Kaepernick video on Facebook, which has something like 300,000 views right now, Frederick Douglass was a slave. He, he himself was a slave. And he fought his whole life for economic freedom. Booker T. Washington was a slave. And he worked his whole life to improve education for black people, including starting and building his own school in Alabama. Martin Luther King Jr. worked to strengthen the family and faith of all people, including black people. These men lived real oppression. But they did something to solve it. They didn't just do stupid things. They didn't just oh, I'm st- like lay in the street or sit during an national anthem. They didn't do pointless stuff for like that grandstanding stuff. And you know what they also didn't do it for? They didn't do things so that we can uh, uh, start a conversation. <laughs> I'm so sick of having a conversation about things. I'm so sick of it. Because while we're over here having a conversation, there's some real issues that need solving. And we're just talking about nothing. While we're talking, we're, we're having a dialogue. We're so, it's time to start a dialogue. For the love of Pete, we've had a dialogue forever. And while we're doing that, there's some real parents who are addicted to drugs. On my local show, we talked to a woman the other day who used to be addicted. She had four kids. Lived in an abusive home. She went to this program that we have here in San Diego called Solutions for Change. She got clean, and now her kids are thriving. She's thriving. It's amazing. People tell us, oh, it's, it's uh, time to have a conversation. Well, in the meantime, there's actual kids being neglected at, home, neglected at home who need a mentor. Big brothers, big sisters, a great solution to that. I'm so sick of celebrities doing things and then excusing it with, well, you know, anything to get a conversation going. It's time we have a national conversation. (laughs) While you're doing that, there's kids failing school 
because the governments won't let parents choose which school to send their kids to. Now, they're either failing school or they're going to a failing school. Either way. So sick of told, being told we got to have a conversation when there's broken families and broken education systems. We know the problem. Broken families, broken education system. We know the solution. Strengthen the families. Improve education. But we still got to have a conversation. Got to do Got to have a conversation. Th- this insanity is so crystal clear to me. I, I have this, this image of someone drowning. Now imagine someone you love is drowning. And, and you have a life preserver, right? You have a lifesaver in your hand. And you're about to throw it to that person. But someone comes along and says, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. This is a great time to stop and have a conversation. You know, it's actually about time we have a national dialogue about drowning. It's a really big problem. Don't throw that lifesaver yet. We got to finish our conversation. Um, drowning. Hmm. Yeah. Right? Am I right? The worst. Hmm. Well, good. Glad we had this conversation. Like, shut up. We don't need any more conversations. We need acting or action. We need action. Go. Do. Save. Fix. Solve. (laughs) What are we doing? Having a conversation. So annoying. So, clearly, after a talking to by his ESPN bosses, he did this on SportsCenter, clip 1136. What's been the reaction uh, since you said that you don't believe the country is oppressing black people? Carrie, it's been incredible. Uh, I've heard from so many people, Mm -hmm. and most Mm -hmm. of of whom were shocked by what I said and yeah, but I've not the guy you were talking to. Like this, I've gone back to review what I said there. I went back to review what I said in an exchange with, with Joey Galloway on College Football Live. And I could spend the rest of my life trying to talk my way out of it, but I can't. I blew it. I simply did not have a good grasp of the situation. I know better. Uh, I've lived in this country. I see what is going on all across the country from, from north to south, east to west. And... I have no excuse. I, I can't explain why I articulated the words the way they did, but I, but, but I did, and, and there's a public record of it, and, and there's a natural reaction, and I respect that, and, and all I can say is that uh, I, I made a terrible mistake in, in trying to express a feeling that I probably, not probably, I had no right to express, uh, and I don't know whether uh, this will mean anything to anyone, but, but, but I feel compelled to, to answer your question that way, that, that it was a terrible mistake on my part, and, and uh, my eyes are wider open today than they've ever been as a result. Have you had an opportunity to talk to Paul or, excuse me, to talk to Marcus or yes. We can stop uh, it there. Jay I'm, I'm, I'm done listening to this. So uh, she goes on at the end and says, um, you know, uh, Paul, I'm just uh, really appreciate you saying that you blew it. <laughs> So the black woman who's a hosting sports center. Mm, really appreciate you saying you blew it and uh, admitting that black people are oppressed. So oppressed. Oof, so much oppression. Says the black woman hosting sports center. We live in a country with a black president for the love of Pete. How did he blow it? This is the greatest lie of the whole thing. 
the left doesn't want to have a conversation. That's what they say they do. Oh, could have a conversation. They don't want a conversation. Paul Feinbaum was having a conversation. He was part of the conversation. Someone says, uh, we're pressing by people. He says, no, we're not. Great opportunity for someone to say, yes, you are. Yes, we are. Right? That's a conversation. (laughs) It's a back and forth. They're not interested in having conversations. How long can the American people, and this Sunday is going to amplify it again, how long can the American people talk about Kaepernick and still never say anything? How many words can be, can be bloviated about Colin Kaepernick without any, anything of meaning at all? I've listened to so many panel discussions on it, sports shows, political shows about Kaepernick. No one said anything. Oh, well, he's uh, kneeling because black people are being oppressed. Hmm. Like, no, no, one, no one said how. Oh, they just are. Well, who's doing the oppressing? Hmm. Society. Who? Ah, oh, you know. So oppressive. Just so oppressive. Everyone wants to have a conversation, but when Feinbaum... Steps out of line, gets his head cut off. Some conversation. I want to come back. I have a specific example of what I believe is a gross injustice in California. This is something that Black Lives Matter needs to get on. Okay, this is this is one of the most. Really, one of the most unjust things I've ever I've ever seen in my lifetime, and it's a very specific thing. And we've been talking about it on my local show for a couple months now, and we fixed it. There was an injustice, an injustice, and we fixed it. We didn't have a conversation about it. Well, we did for a minute, and then everyone said, "Oh, this is this is not right," and we fixed it. It's crazy. I'll tell you about that story next. Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Fine bomb. ESPN radio host says black people aren't oppressed. Qualifies it a hundred times saying there's issues we need to solve, but no one's oppressed. Raked over the coals for it. Forced to gravel, grovel to keep his job. I find it so annoying that everyone talks about oppression, but no one gives an example. Watch it uh, tomorrow on the NFL when all these people uh, knee, take a knee and all this stuff during the anthem. And, and see if anyone gives an actual example of, of oppression and who's doing the oppressing. Give an example. No one can. And then even if someone maybe does, like maybe someone will be specific about police brutality or something, even though that's still general. But maybe they're specific and there'll be a police brutality in Detroit. They're certainly not going to give any solutions. So what are you doing? 
So I want to give you an example. This is something I, I'm, I'm very passionate about. And, uh, well, let me give you the background. I'll tell you what happened. In California, there's something called a gang database. Now, police can put you on a gang database for many different reasons. As little as you have been seen talking with a known gang member or someone else on the gang data list, the gang database. Now, if someone on that list commits a crime, let's say you're on the list. Okay. Let's say you're, you're, you're one day, and this is real life. I mean, I've talked to people who have been put on the list for this reason. You were talking um, to a guy outside of a, a convenience store. Okay. Just uh, shooting the breeze. Police officer sees you talking to that guy. You're put on the list. You don't know you're put on the list, but you're put on the list. A couple of years go by. Someone else on the list commits a crime. You're arrested. You're arrested for conspiracy. You must have known about this crime because you are also on the gang database list. And you're arrested for conspiracy. We had a listener to our show. His son was put on that gang database list. No idea he was on it. Someone committed a crime. They still don't know who. So it'd be one thing if it was uh, Charlie Smith on the gang list uh, committed a crime and, and we're going to arrest you because you know we know that you know him and, and blah, blah, blah. It's not even that. This was someone committed a crime. We don't know who, but it's probably someone on the gang database. So we're going to arrest you because you're on the gang. Like I'm not even kidding. That's what that was. One of the most unjust things I've ever heard in modern America. It's all across California. Being charged for conspiracy to commit a crime. But there's no evidence that you knew about it other than you're also on a list that no one tells you you were put on or why you were put on it. (laughs) Now, let me give you an example of how absurd this is. On this gang database list, because I bet there's someone listening who's like, Slater, well, I like the list. The list makes sense to me. Blah, blah. There are 42 people on this gang database list, 42 people who have one thing in common. What do you think that thing is in common? 42 people on the list. And I don't even know how many people are on it completely, but 42 people are on the list. Why? What do they have in common? Um, similar tattoos. No. From the same family? They're all from one. No. 42 people are on the list are under the age of one. Gangster babies. 42 under the age of one. 28 of those were entered for, quote, admitting to being gang members. They're less than one. Okay? This is a corrupt list. So, our listener and his son... And others have been working with government officials. And uh, about two weeks ago, a bill was passed that says you have to be notified when you're put on the list. Oh, by the way, this guy who I'm talking about, our listener's son, was put on the list like 15 years ago. (laughs) You have to be notified when you're put on the list and you have a chance to contest it. Now, I don't know any details beyond that. We're going to look more into it. Like, I don't know how you contest it. Or how you're notified. I'm sure it's not sufficient, but at least it's a good step. 
So this database list is the most oppressive thing I've ever heard in modern America. Even though it, just, it doesn't just affect black people. I'm sure there's a lot of Hispanic people on it too here in San Diego. But it's the most oppressive thing I've ever heard, but remedied with zero fanfare. And just fixed and, you know, we'll assess it again and see what, I mean, like, is that the sign of an oppressive country? We have issues. That was an issue. That was a problem. But we fixed it. That's not an oppressive country. We got a minute here. Can we play uh, 1137? There's one more clip. This is Feinbaum uh, in between when he said it on his show and then had to apologize. He was on a different show in between all that. Listen to this. I'm really curious, though, and he did it, but I'm not sure what this conversation is really all about. I mean, we have this dialogue in our country uh, continuously, and I thought uh, LeBron and others at, at the ESPYs made a very strong statement, but this, to me, looks a little bit like an outlier. I mean, these are issues that politicians that that uh, elected uh, employee elected officials uh the, the public like us talk about every single day there are serious problems in this country but ultimately what's helped what 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 is the what is the end result of, of what colin did the other night well that we will find out but you don't get to choose or decide how someone else protests I mean, if that's the case, then then nobody would have a protest because then somebody would just design it for them. So usually people protest when 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 they've been oppressed, uh, when when they've been amended, when they they have a legitimate stake in the action. I I don't know where Colin is coming from. I mean, what's what's his beef with with society other than he's upset about uh, the way people are, in his mind, are being oppressed in this country? But but what we're doing now, what else? As if that's nothing. Well, you, you also say Paul. Well, no, it's obviously you very important, say, Paul, but why him? You also say, Paul, what did he get accomplished? We're talking about it. There it is. We're talking about it. We can stop there. We're talking about it. That's having a conversation about nothing. About nothing. No specifics, no solutions, no action. What, what, are, we, what are we doing? What is that? I want to ask you a question next. I'm going to tell you three different people. You tell me which of the three are oppressed. Do that next. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze. And one of them is, by the way. One of these three people are. We'll do it next. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later. All right, let's keep chatting about this, about oppression, people being oppressed. Dwayne Wade, basketball player. You heard this story a couple weeks ago. His cousin was walking down the street in Chicago with her baby in a stroller to register her other kids for school. I think she has two or three other kids. Two brothers shot and killed her. They tried to shoot someone else, but the bullets hit and killed her. Now, I'll say there's a 99% chance that these two brothers did not have a dad and went to a failed school. 
99% chance. Put my money on it. Not proudly. I'm just saying like that's probably what like that was probably their background. Because statistically, that's almost always the background. This is Dwayne Wade. My cousin was killed today in Chicago. Another act of senseless gun violence. Four kids, four kids lost their mom for no reason. Unreal. Enough is enough. The city of Chicago is hurting. We need more help and more hands on deck. Not for me and my my family, but for the future of our world, the youth. These young kids are screaming for help. Enough is enough. Four years ago, Dwayne Wade's nephew was shot in the leg in Chicago. What are we doing? How can anyone be okay with this? So I got a question. There's three people involved in this scenario. Three groups of people. Person one, Dwayne Wade. Famous basketball player. Group of people two, his cousin and their four, and her four kids. Right? And the third group of people are the two gang members who shot her. Now, they all happen to be black in this scenario, but that doesn't matter. Honest question. Who is oppressed of those three group, of those three people? Just for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to call them people from now on, even though there are multiple people in each group. Do you with me? So who's, which of those three people are oppressed? I'll go through them again. Dwayne Wade, famous basketball player. His cousin with four kids. Okay, that's person number two. Or person number three, the two gang members. Who of those are oppressed? We need to answer that question. That's an important question. Who's oppressed? Is it the famous and richer than everyone listening combined to basketball player? Is he oppressed? Is Dwayne Wade oppressed? Is the mother of four kids who is just walking down the street to register her kids for school and killed? Is she oppressed? Or are the two gang members oppressed? Who's oppressed? Oh, maybe well, you know, maybe all three are oppressed. Mm, wild card. Th- all three are oppressed because they're all black. Everyone's oppressed. Mm, everyone's oppressed. Crazy. No, I don't think so. I think of the three groups. The mom's oppressed because she's dead for no reason, and her four four kids they're oppressed because people shot her, killed her mom. But here's the deal. The left will make it seem that either all of these people are oppressed because all black people are oppressed, right, Kaepernick? Or they'll look at it from the perspective of the criminals. They'll say they are the oppressed one because we have another black male locked away in our prisons. And you think, well, wait a second. These two black males shot an innocent woman. It seems to me that she is the oppressed one. Oh, but Slater, they grew up in, uh, these two gang members grew up in a, in a bad home environment. They didn't have a father and they uh, went to a failing school. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Which is why we need to fix that. Which is why we preach every day on this show, every week on this show. Family and education. Family and education. Family and education. I, I, where was I? Oh, I made a video. And I said we need to strengthen the family. Made a Facebook video about strengthening the family. And someone wrote back, Oh, Slater, what, what do you mean, strengthen family? That's so stupid. Dumb right-wing talking point. What do you want to ban divorce? You know what I mean. You know what I mean? You're just choosing to be difficult. 
That's it. You just, you have made a choice. The person who wrote that comment just made a choice. I'm going to be difficult. I'm going to watch this video. I'm not really going to listen to it. I'm just going to be difficult about it. And for what? So why are we doing this? Why 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 do we think that the gang members are the oppressed? Now, let's say we all agree that she is the oppressed one, which I believe. It's true. She's dead. What do we do to stop the oppression? Because right, that's step one. Step one, identify who's oppressed. It's not just black people. That makes sense. Who specifically is oppressed? Okay, this woman who was killed. Okay. How do we stop the oppression? Okay, let's do short term. More police officers. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can't do that. Police are oppressive. Police are oppressive? Mm-hmm. All the police are oppressive. Okay. Uh, all right, let's do long term then. Long term, we need to institute school choice so that kids grow up with hope and a future. No, can't do that. Can't do that. Unions don't want it. Unions don't want to improve our schools in any way whatsoever, so we got to leave that one alone. Can't touch that one. Okay. Uh, short-term and long-term, let's celebrate families. Let's strengthen families. Let's encourage families. Let's celebrate present fathers. As I mentioned with Glenn earlier, a couple weeks ago, I met with 60 men at Donovan Prison. Maximum security prison on the border here. They'll tell you their regrets about not being a father, not being a present father to their children. And they'll tell you the pain of not having present fathers in their lives. That's ingrained in all of us. Family. So let's do that. Let's be better parents and have strong families. Oh, Slater. You're imposing your white societal norms on people of color. That's oppressive. No. I just want to live in a country where moms can walk down the street pushing a baby stroller and don't have to be shot and killed by gang members. But we can't do anything because the left looks at the gang members as the oppressed people. So we're stuck. Trump in Milwaukee a couple weeks ago, remember he had three speeches in a row that were just money. And one of them was in Milwaukee. Remember, there were protests going on there. He said, our job is not to make life more comfortable for the rioter, the looter, the violent disruptor. Our job is to make life more comfortable for the African-American parent who wants their kids to be able to safely walk the streets. He said this like a week before Dwayne Wade's cousin was killed. Or the senior citizen waiting for a bus or the young child walking home from school. And for every one violent protester, there are a hundred moms and dads and kids on that same city block who just want to be able to sleep safely at night. My opponent would rather protect the offender than the victim. That is such a good line. And it's true. That's why no one's allowed to ever really, let me put it like this. This is why we never pass the conversation part of anything dealing with race. <laughs> we never pass the conversation part. Have you noticed with global warming? Conversation over. 
Science is settled. Conversation over. No time for a conversation. Uh, whoa, whoa. But what about this uh, factor? Nope, nope. Conversation's over. Science is settled. Have you noticed that? Science settled there. Conversation over. But with, with, uh, with race, it's about time we have a conversation. <laughs> We've been having a conversation forever. Shut up already. But if we are going to have a conversation, let's be more specific. Let's keep an ear out for any of the NFL protesters tomorrow who take a knee. See if anyone has any specifics. I'll be, I'll be listening. Hope to hear one. And again, if by miracle they have one, a specific, and they can identify the oppressed and the oppressor and then have a solution, beautiful. That'd be awesome. You want to know who, uh, who is actually doing a good job of this? P. Diddy. What in the world? P. Diddy, what? I'll show you what he did in Harlem the other day. We'll do it next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. Slater is on. So actually, here's a pretty good example of someone who identified a specific problem and then actually did something to solve it. So you tell me what's different. Let's say Colin Kaepernick took a knee or whoever. I'm so sick of him. But whoever. Someone takes a knee and they say, oh, um, uh, I, I'm protesting our school systems. Okay. Uh, and? Uh, they're no good. Okay. And? Yeah. Just want to start a conversation about it (laughs) okay so that's that's basically what's going on with Kaepernick on the other side you got P. Diddy Sean Combs rapper mogul etc now he made news the other day he was on the Al Sharpton show which is still a show I guess and he said um, he said with Hillary we need to hold the vote hold the vote which is a far cry from 2008 when he said vote or die that was his big campaign, vote or die. And today it's hold the vote. Uh, talking about black people not handing over their vote to Democrats, just you know, getting nothing in return. But um, So that made news. He said something about Hillary, like, uh, not taking advantage of black people, but whatever. But there's something else in that interview, which I think is more noteworthy. Last week, he opened up a charter school in Harlem, where he's from. He's from Harlem, and he opened up a charter school there. Why? Well, here he is, 1139. So as the years went by, you know, I ran a marathon. Education has always been important to me. I ran a marathon and we proudly raised $3 million for um, the New York City public school system. And my thing was I I had a lot of concerns and complaints about the educational system and how, like, our children are treated. And... And, and I'm a person of action. So instead of me talking about it, I wanted to go and work with the system and then show them a better way to do it. And I just thank them for giving me a chance. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm coming to really revolutionize, you know, the junior high and high school levels of education. Um, I think that we have to prepare 
our kids for the realities of what's out there. We have to prepare them to be leaders. And so those curriculums that are out there now are, are dated. You know, that, that, that's not the times that we're in. And so as a community, if we don't update our curriculums just as the curriculums are updated. And- Let me stop there. It's amazing. I love that. He raised, a couple of years ago, he raised $3 million for public schools and gave them to the Harlem schools and said, well, that, that, that didn't do anything. That was, <laughs> I think Mark Zuckerberg, I, I don't have time to look at it. I think he gave like $100 million to New Jersey or Newark schools, and that didn't do anything either. So he says, this is, this is stupid. I'm just going to go and open up my own school. Last clip, 1140. This has, this has that domino effect that people don't understand. It's that when they're wondering what's going on, it's our conditions. And you can't make no money unless you have an education. So it starts there, you know. For me, it starts there. And instead of talking about it, I want to do something about it. So I'm, I'm very proud to, to say today um, I opened hey, open up the school. Wow, crazy. So we have uh, P. Diddy saying that education is the most important thing. Crazy. I mean, because... We say that all the time and get called racist for saying it. Not only P. Diddy, they're talking about the importance of education, but how we need to completely change the education system. P. Diddy gave $3 million to the public schools, realized that was dumb, opened up his own charter school in Harlem, which Mayor de Blasio... His first thing he did when he became mayor was to try and shut down the charter schools. First order of business because the teachers unions wanted him to because charter schools are usually non-union. First thing Mayor de Blasio wanted to do was shut down the charter schools. But I guarantee you P. Diddy and others support, people like him support Mayor de Blasio. So let's just get, let's get those things right. I mean, let's, let's get all those things in order and, and let's be consistent there. And we can be, uh, we can be smart about this moving forward. So you have education. P. Diddy doing good work there. I like it. I like it a lot. I'll end on this. You know, the Black Lives Matter, because we always talk about family and education. It's family and education, family and education. The Black Lives Matter website, you can check it out, blacklivesmatter.org. They have different issues. One of them is the Black Village. And it says, we are committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. By supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another and especially our children, in quotes, our children, they wrote it in quotes, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. So this is the old Marxist idea that your kids aren't yours, they're the government's, they're everyone's. Not, they're not your children, they're our children, our children. But how about that? Like we're going to, we're committed to disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Amazing. Family and education, both under attack. I value people who don't just talk about it, but are men and women of action. I know that's who you are. Slater Radio on Twitter. Please follow me on Facebook so we can hang out all week. I will see you next Saturday. Mike Slater, show the plays. Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.